Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit will join us here and our minds will be enlightened, our hearts will be brought into unity with you and to each other in accordance of love, that our, our discernment will be sharp today and we will understand the, the symbols of the message that you have for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. <clears throat> we are doing lesson number five in our quarterly uh, Garments of Grace, Clothing Imagery in the Bible. And the lesson title this week is The Priestly Garments of Grace. And uh, in Sabbath lesson, the first paragraph reads, One great theme from the Protestant Reformation is what has been called the priesthood of all believers. The idea derived especially, but not solely, from the above text that all Christians function as priests before God and that because, uh, and, and that because they have Jesus, they don't need an earthly mediator, as in some religious systems, between them and the Lord. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5. Any any thoughts about this as you read that? Anything pop into your mind? We strive too hard to distinguish why something isn't too important. Did you notice how the lesson seems to maybe take a little tiny shot at organizations that have earthly mediators? Did you see that? Uh, implying maybe that, that, that because we're the priesthood of believers, we don't need that, right? What about our church then? Do we believe in the priesthood of all believers? Yes then why aren't there ordained women if we're all a priesthood of believers? Or why aren't our only ordained pastors allowed to be conference presidents if we're all priesthood of believers? If we're all really equally priesthood of believers, why do we have this credentialing differentiation? Do we believe that the truth must come through the seminary or those with seminary training if we're the priesthood of believers? Uh, these are just some questions that came to my mind as I thought about that because... Um, I do believe in the priesthood of believers. I do believe that each one of us, enlightened by the Spirit, studying God's Word, can come to a knowledge of salvation and the plan of God and have a purpose for God. You notice the 12 apostles that were chosen by Christ, none had seminary training. Christ himself didn't go to the school of the prophets. Now, some will point out Paul, the great theologian of the New Testament, was a Pharisee and trained in the seminaries. True? And when he was going by that training alone, what was he doing? Killing Christians. Christians. Yes. And so when he had Damascus Road experience and was converted, what was the next thing he did? He spent three and a half years in the desert with Christ getting a re-education. Isn't that right? Three and a half years in the desert with Christ getting his seminary training reorganized. So then he could be useful to teach the truth. Um, Martin Luther, great reformer, also seminary trained. And what happened? Did he go with the seminary training in the end, or did he go with the scripture? With the scripture. Yeah. Yeah. So, what does it mean to be a mediator? Talking about the mediator between God and man. Go between. Oh, first words, go between. Good for you. Go between. Yes, I go between. What else? Advocate. advocate. Absolutely, got that on here. That's actually the second one. So first and second, go between an advocate. What else? So you can get the third. <laughs> How about envoy? Ambassador? Representative? All these part of being a mediator? So what is Christ's role in mediation? Make the Father known to us. Any other thoughts? Who needs a mediator? How about the how about Gabriel? 
How about Gabriel? Does he need a mediator? Yes. The angels unfallen? The sinless beings who've never sinned, do they need a mediator? This is an interesting quote I found in a review in Herald, January 11, 1881. While we rejoice that there are worlds which have never fallen, these worlds render praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ for the plan of redemption to save the fallen sons of Adam, as well as to conform themselves in their position and character of purity. The arm that raised the human family from the ruin which Satan had brought upon the race through his temptations is the arm which has preserved the inhabitants of other worlds from sin. Every world throughout immensity engages the care and support of the Father and the Son, and this care is constantly exercised for fallen humanity. Christ is mediating in behalf of man, and the order of unseen worlds also is preserved by his mediatorial work. Are not these themes of sufficient magnitude and importance to engage our thoughts and call forth our gratitude and adoration for God? What do you think about that? Does... Have you heard this before? Some of you have? No? Does it, does it make you step back and reconsider what mediation means? The traditional view of Jesus pleading his blood to the Father to pay for our sins. Did the unfallen worlds need that? No. But they're sustained by his mediatorial work. Does mediation mean something than more or different than paying for our sins? Well, they have to know the Father as well as we do. So Christ presented through his example, like he did to us, he must have gone to other worlds and, and uh, Can you all hear her? represented the Father to them until they learned of the Father. What, what do you think about that? Mediation. I would consider it to be an ongoing revelation. So as things unfold... There's, it's not a once-and-done deal. Especially in the light of, of the charges that were brought against God by Lucifer. And, and we know that we're told that the angels weren't settled in their minds about all the answers to those questions until after the cross. And Christ himself said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. Right. Not all men. Men is supplied. All unto me. Yeah. How about tweaking the word mediation and call it mentor? Oh, mentor. Yeah, a mentor, a teacher. Yeah, yeah. Teaching us the truth about God. Other thoughts about this idea? I'm not going to press it too, too much today. I want to just leave it with you to let your minds dwell on this idea of the, the worlds out there that have never sinned are sustained by his mediatorial work. Yes? I was going to take the same approach that she took. That Satan, when he first started having the ideas of sin, God came to him and worked with him, according to E.G. White, and, and worked with him until he understood that it was wrong. And it was at the point that he decided to go on, even though he knew it was wrong, that it became sin. And he was in true rebellion. Other nations, other races on other planets, they may have doubts. They may have wonder. They may be confused. They may even be, they're free, so they could actually entertain an idea that will be sinful if they follow through with it. And then that's where Jesus would mediate or mentor. He would come and help them see what they were doing. And they would, oh, and, and back off or change course. So you, you, mediation is in mediating the truth, uh, answering the questions, uh, sustaining them in their innocence, preventing disaffection. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Tuesday's lesson. Let's jump to Tuesday's lesson. It's the priestly garments and the, and the high priestly garments as well. And let's, let's talk about the high priestly garments. What is represented by the high priest clothing? And let, let's go through that. It's a bunch of symbols. Symbols 
are designed to teach, you know, E equals MC squared. Anybody heard that before? And it's meaningless unless you know what the symbols mean. This is Einstein's theory, E equals MC squared. E stands for energy, M stands for mass, C stands for the speed of light. Now, when you know what the symbols stand for, then the, then the equation has meaning. But without the knowledge of what the symbols mean, it's a meaningless expression. Likewise, in Scripture, there's lots of symbols. How about if we give wrong definition to the symbols? E equals entertainment. And <laughs> C, equals, C equals cash. Okay, okay, and, and and M equals mass media. Okay, we can get a completely different idea of what this is trying to express. So when we look at this, let's see if we can understand what some of these symbols mean. Only uh, only the ephod, the curious girdle. We're talking about the high priest. The ephod, the heart, curious girdle, and the breastplate of of the high priest. Only in those do we find woven into the fabric gold. Only in those. Oh, it's the only only clothing in the in the system where this happened. In Exodus 28, 6 and 7, it says, Make an ephod of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and of fine twisted linen and work uh, the work of a skilled craftsman. It is to have two shouldered pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened together. So what do you think the symbols mean? Character of Christ. Which symbols mean that? The garments. All of them. Maybe. Let's, maybe. Let's, let's see if we can't press it a little further. Blue yes. means the law. Purple means royalty. Okay, purple means royalty. Yeah, so we're looking. Let's look at the colors first. So purple means royalty. It's interesting to note that red, which represents the blood of Christ, and the and the blue, the purity, together make purple. So now we've we've heard two things for blue. She says blue represents the law. She says blue represents purity. And the scarlet. What's the scarlet represent? The blood or the sacrifice life. Let's start with the gold. What does the gold represent? The gold, I believe, and throughout the whole system, represents God's divine character of love. The pure, undiluted character of God is gold. The blue, I understand, represents the heavens, the skies. It's the heavenly origin coming from heaven. The uh, purple represents royalty. The scarlet represents the sacrifice life. And the fine linen, which is white, represents perfect human character developed by Christ in his humanity. And so we have a high priest who is got the divine character of God, came from heaven, is royal, and through a sacrificed life, develops a perfect human character. What do you think about the symbols of the thing being tied together and joined together? Is that symbolic that these two, these two shoulder pieces are joined together? I'll push through this pretty quickly. Um, from what tribe was the priesthood derived? Levi. Levi. Genesis 39, 34. Uh, this is Leah. I don't know if you know about Leah. This was, this was, Levi was her fourth son. It was the fourth son of, of Leah. It says, again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become joined or attached to me. Because of this, because I've borne him, oh, this was the third son, three sons. So his name was Levi. Levi actually means join together, to join together. And the Levites were symbolic of what? What are the Levites themselves symbolic of? The priesthood of believers. And in Numbers 18, 2 and 4, it's basically speaking of the high priest, it says, and the Levites shall be joined to the high priest, joined together to the high priest. So what's the symbol there? Who's the high priest? And who are the priesthood of believers? And are we to be joined together with him? 
Yeah, so there's a symbol here of joining or bringing together. Uh, us united with Christ. Yeah. Uh, on the shoulders were stones on each shoulder. Engraved on the shoulders were the 12 tribes in order of their birth. 12 tribes in order of their birth. What do you think this symbolizes? Is it, is it symbolic of something? What do you think it means? It's pretty straightforward. Shoulders, shoulders are symbolic of strength. And Christ carries humanity on his shoulders. Because the 12 tribes are symbolic of, of humanity. Remember, it would be people saved from every nation, kindred, tribe. There's the, the, the 144,000 from every tribe. Okay, so this is a, 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 the, the priesthood of believers which come from all the tribes on Christ's shoulders. This is the humanity being carried on his shoulders. And as we continue to talk about the garments of the high priest, look at Wednesday's lesson, and we'll back up to Tuesday in a minute. And the first paragraph on Wednesday's lesson says, Of all the vestments worn by the priest, the breastplate of judgment, Exodus 28.15, to be worn by the high priest was the most elaborate and intricate. The other garments were worn like a backdrop to the sacred part of the priestly vestment. Consider, considerable time, about one-third of the chapter, is spent describing the construction of this sacred ornament. That alone should indicate something just how central and important it was to the ministry of the priests of the sanctuary. So, what do you hear described in the description, breastplate of judgment? The Urim and the Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim. Okay. They're on the breastplate, sure. Other thoughts? Is the breastplate, is this, is this symbolic, the breastplate of judgment, of a judgment? The judge sitting in judgment. Is that what you hear? That's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like. Is, the, is this the breastplate of a judicial proceeding? Or is it a breastplate to enhance or provide or enable good discernment and good judgment? Do you see the difference? Is it a breastplate to give us discernment, to give us judgment? Well, this is what it says in the NIV of that same passage, Exodus 28, 15. Fashion a breastplate for making decisions. The work of a skilled craftsman. Wow, do you hear fashion a breastplate for making decisions different than the breastplate of judgment? It, our, you see, our minds are bent, so conditioned in one way. When we hear the word judgment, we almost always hear something like this. Like this, this courtroom in here. Rather than, isn't it true that somebody can have good judgment? So, if you're sick, and you go to a doctor... Do you want a doctor with good judgment? Yes. Do you want a doctor who can make good judgments? Yes. If you have to go to a place for judgment, where you are going to be judged, would you prefer to go to a doctor's office who, ha who has the ability to heal whatever is wrong for examination in his judgment or to a courtroom? Which place would you like to go for your examination and judgment to be found? Why would you rather go to the doctor's office? Remember, the doctor's office with, who has the ability to heal whatever's wrong. Does God have the ability to heal whatever's wrong with us? Yes. Because if you go to the doctor's office, he's going to attempt a treatment plan. If you go to the judge, he might throw you in jail. Yeah. Ah. Does it make a difference when you hear judgment... Does it make a difference whether you see it through the lens of the doctor's office or the lens of the courtroom? Yeah. Which of these two examples do you think is closer to the reality of God's kingdom? So, 
the breastplate, let's, let's continue on then with the breastplate. The breastplate was made from gold and had 12 stones plus Urim and Thummim. And each stone was written the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel and attached, the, the plate then was attached via gold, cor, gold chains to the rest of the vestments. Is this what I just described, this, this priestly garment, this, this breastplate, is this symbolism or is it literal? Is Jesus in heaven wearing an outfit like this? Symbolism. Do you think Jesus is in heaven wearing these types of robes with a breastplate with these stones and things on his shoulders? And we're going to get to the hat piece in a minute with the, with the golden uh, uh, thing. Is, he, is this literal or symbolism? symbolism? Okay, so let's understand the symbols. What is the significance? Can we understand any reality behind this? The names written on the 12 stones represent... This is why it says that the different stones represented different character traits and the name of the tribe was on the appropriate stone to represent the character traits of the tribe. Okay, she says that, uh, that the stones represent different character traits and the names on there represent... Yes, I, I think that's right. So what else do they represent? Do they represent people? Yes. 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 The people of the tribe. And what does it mean that they're on the breastplate? Close to God's heart. Yes. Yes. He thinks it's a symbol saying God carries us close to his heart. That's a pretty nice way of showing that in a symbolic, acted out way. Um, The breastplate was attached via four gold chains. Oh, and the other thing I think it represents, where are the the breastplate itself is made out of what? Gold. Gold. What's gold represent? The perfect char- God's perfect character of love. Not just the love of God, the perfect character of love. And so these stones are set where? They're set into the gold breastplate. What does that think that symbolizes? These, gold, these stones represent the people of God that are close to his heart, set where? In, in the into, they're settled into the character of God. Does that make sense? Yeah, so we're settled into the character of God, held close to his heart. From every nation, kindred, tribe, and people, there will be people settled into his character. So the breastplate was attached via four gold chains. What do the gold chains represent? Are you finding this interesting? Or Okay, this is out of um, Nine Testimonies uh, 253. It says, Christ's believing people are to perpetuate his love. This love is to draw them together around the cross. It is to... It is to divest them of all selfishness. Notice what this love is to do. Divest us. What does it mean to divest? To get rid of us. To divest us. Get rid of all selfishness and bind them to God and to one another. Meet around the cross of Calvary in self-sacrifice and self-denial. God will bless you as you do your best. As you approach the throne of grace, as you find yourself bound to this throne by the golden chain let down from heaven to earth to draw men from the pit of sin, your heart will go out in love for your brothers and sisters who are without God and without hope. Now this doesn't come out and say it directly. You have to think. What does it say the golden chain is here? Love. Yes, the golden chain. It says, perpetuate his love. It is to divest them of all selfishness as you find yourself bound to his throne by the golden chain let down from heaven. What is it that binds us? It says it is to divest them of all selfishness and bind them to God. This, this, well, if that's not close enough, how about this one? This is out of Desire of Ages 679. These things I have spoken unto you, Christ said, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 
Christ did not fail, neither was he discouraged. And his father, followers are to manifest a faith of that same enduring nature. They are to live as he lived and work as he worked because they depend on him as the great master worker. Courage, energy, and perseverance they must possess. Though apparent impossibilities obstruct their way, by his grace they are to go forward. Instead of deploring difficulties, they are called upon to surmount them. Wow. That's us, guys. We surmount difficulties. They are to despair of nothing and to hope for everything. With the golden chain of his matchless love, Christ has bound them to the throne of God. That just gives me chills. You think that? Think, think this symbol is in the golden chain. All right, we are represented by the stones. Remember living stones in the other place? The stones settled into the character of God, bound to his heart by the chains of his matchless love. We are bound to the throne of God. Uh, it is his... It is his purpose, now get this, it is his purpose that the highest influence in the universe emanating from the source of all power shall be theirs. What is the highest influence in the universe that emanates from the source of all power? What is it? God's love. That is the highest influence in the universe. And it's to be ours. Yeah, I found that just, it's really cool. So the chain that binds, binds and the symbolism. Here we have a high priest. High priest is representative of Christ. Christ carries the world on his shoulders, the weight of the world on his shoulders. Uh, and he has reached out, taken us as living stones, settled us into his character, the perfect character of God, binds us to his heart and to the throne of God through the, through the chains of his infinite love. What about the Urim and Thummim? What do these symbolize? Do you know what, does everybody know what Urim and Thummim were? Okay, a stone on the right, stone on the left. Do you know how they were used? Make decisions. decisions. If there was a, a, I believe on the right side, if they asked a question and and a light shone over the the one on the right, that was an affirmation, go. If the one on the left had a cloud over it, it was, no, don't do it. It was a no. Okay? So Urim and Thummim, where, where are they found? In the breastplate. Where all the stones are settled into the gold, uh, the, the gold, uh, part of the character of God. So, what do you think it might mean? Could it possibly be the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of those who are settled into His character? We have that sensitivity again. We are, are we are renewed in heart. Our consciences are cleansed. We are able to discern right from wrong, as it says in Hebrews. That, that through the work of the Spirit working in our minds, enlightening us, we can, are impressionable to God's leading. Well, this is what it says out of um, Conflict and Courage, page 17. Speaking about King Saul, and, and see if this gives us any insight into maybe what, what these relate to. It says, The Lord answered Saul not. This is quoting 1 Samuel 28, 6. Neither by dreams, nor Urim, nor by prophets. And then she goes on to comment. The Lord never turned away a soul that came to him in sincerity and, in, and humility. Why did he turn Saul away unanswered? The king had by his own act forfeited the benefits of all the methods of inquiring of God. He had rejected the counsel of Samuel the prophet. He had ex- exiled David, the chosen of God. He had slain the priests of the Lord. He had sent away the spirit of grace. And could, and could he be answered by dreams and revelations from the Lord? Saul did not turn to God with humility and repentance. It was not pardon for sin and reconciliation with God that he sought, but deliverance from his foes. 
Does this give us an insight as to why there was no answer from Hiram? Why? He wasn't open. So does this maybe help us understand when our minds are not open to God, that the symbol of Urim and Thummim shows a mind that is in heart and a heart that is connected to God and open to the movements of his spirit to lead us into the right and to the wrong. Uh, uh, that's my thought. What do you think? The high priest also had a blue robe. It says in Exodus 28, 31-38, you, you, you shall make a robe of an ephod of all blue, and it shall have a hole for the head in the midst thereof, and it shall have a binding of woven work around the hole of it, as it were the hole of a coat of mail, that it not be rent. And upon the skirts of it thou shalt make pomegranates of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, and around the skirt thereof, and the bells of gold between them, and, and round about, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, upon the skirt of the robe about it. And then, then that, was, that was worn by the high priest. Not only the high priest wore this blue robe. What do you think this means? Blue robe. What does a white robe represent? Who wore white robes? All the priests. The high priest wore one under the blue robe. The blue robe went over the white robe. There's a linen white robe that the high priest wore, just like all the daily priests wore. And all the daily priests wore a white robe made out of linen. What does the white robe represent? The pure character of Christ. Everybody, everybody, no, it says this. It's the perfect character of Christ. Can, can I say the perfect human character of Christ is represented by the white robe? So what might the blue robe represent? His heavenly the heavenly character of Christ. I have a question. Yeah. In Numbers 15, 38 and 39, it this is what it says. It says, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make fringes in their borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look on, upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So doesn't it say that blue is to remind us of the commandments, the law of God? I don't have a problem with that. Where does the law of God originate? The law originates in the character of God, which originates where? In heaven. Yeah. The there's evidence that the original Ten Commandments were actually written on a piece of God's throne, and God's throne is made out of sapphire. So the original Ten Commandments were, made, were actually on blue tablets of sapphire. Um, but I'm not saying that to differ with what you're saying. I'm just showing further evidence that blue connects with law of God's character. What we've talked about in here all along, what is the law of God? It's his character. I mean, what does the scripture say? So let's say, let's, let's, let's take this, the law of God. According to Scripture, all law originates where? All the law rests upon... What is the greatest of the law? The greatest of the commandments? Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. All, all the law rests upon these. Uh, it says those who... Uh, what does it say in Romans about love? Love is fulfillment of the law. Where, where were the Ten Commandments prior to the creation of earth? Where were the Ten Commandments prior to the creation of Earth? Were they were they anywhere? No, they didn't exist. Did the law of love exist? Yes. Yes. So when it, so so the point I think is yes, God distilled down the law of love into a needed expression for the sinful human beings that He was dealing with. We call the Ten Commandments, but that is not the fulfillment of the law. Yes. 
Well, Paul puts it into perspective. He calls the law a tough old nursemaid. The law was made for people who came out of Exodus knowing nothing of God. And, and they, needed, they needed rails on the side of the road to keep from going off of it. Not that it helped that much, but they needed something to discern right from wrong. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. So we can, we can see this, this blue then represents the perfect law of God, the perfect love of God, the perfect character of God with its origin where? In heaven. In heaven. So I don't have any disharmony. Do you see disharmony with these ideas? I, I see a unity here of this. So the blue robe, I think, represents the perfect divine character from which the law arises. Where does the law arise or originate? In the heart and character of God. Yes or no? Yes. So I think the blue robe represents, the white robe represents the human character Christ developed in his human journey on earth, the perfect human character. But the blue robe represents the divine character. He was the God-man. He was both divine and human that he brought from heaven from which the law originates. Thoughts about that? Are we comfortable with that or uncomfortable with that? Comfortable? Okay. Um, what about then the pomegranates and the bells? Well, as long as the, priest, the high priest was, on the, especially on the Day of Atonement, was moving about, they could hear the bells ringing and knew that everything was all right and was still alive. But if there was something going wrong and the high priest was killed for some reason, the bells were no longer... That's true. It's a symbol. What's it symbolizing? Yes. When we stop hearing the voice of God, the sound of God in our hearts, we should know something's wrong as well. Yes. What are the bells made out of? Gold. In the, in the corner thing. They're made out of gold. What is gold symbolic of? Perfect. And they're connected to... Where, which, which garment are they connected to? The blue robe. The blue robe, which is symbolic of the perfect character of God from whence the law comes. So we have the, and, the, and the, they heard them on which particular day were they particularly listening for? The Day of Atonement. They particularly listened for these bells ringing. Okay? Because the work of the high priest on that day they were focused on. I think you're exactly right. Are we listening and hearing? See, the, I think the bells represent the sound of God's loving action and work in our hearts and minds. That should we not hear and should we not rejoice as God's love works in our hearts and minds? And working to cure mankind from sin? Christ came from heaven. The little bells are the sound of love and action. God's working, the sounds of love and action. And he works as our high priest to cure from, from the heavenly sanctuary. If we're listening, we can hear and understand his work. And it, it should encourage our hearts to know that he's working to bring reconciliation and heal us from sin. So what are the pomegranates? Notice the pomegranates are blue, and the pomegranates are scarlet, and the pomegranates are gold. What do the pomegranates symbolize? If you do an internet search on this, you're going to find pomegranates have rich symbolism in lots of religions of the world. Rich symbolism in lots of religions. They mean lots of different things. They mean something different to Jews than they do to Christians. They were the striker for the bells. The striker for the bells. <laughs> well, why didn't they use olives? They have olive oil in the in the thing. Why didn't they use olives? Why did they use pomegranates? Why not grapes? Or grapes? They had grapes. Grape juice, blood of Christ. Blood of Christ. Yeah. Why 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 they use pomegranates? Is, you think there was just oh well we couldn't figure out anything else or is there maybe a meaning here? Had any, anybody eaten a pomegranate? What do you n note? What is the, m the most notable thing of a pomegranate? Lots of seeds. Notice everybody said the same. Lots of seeds. What are seeds symbolic of? Life. Fertility. Fertility and life. Yes. 
Yes, and so from, from the perfect character of God, the blue robe, where does all life originate? From him. And they're in blue and scarlet and gold. Blue, again, the, the, the heavenly origin and, and perfect harmony of God's law. Remember we've talked about here the law of God is the law of life. That's, what, that's, that's a quote from Desire of Ages. The law of love is the law of life. Okay, So the law of God, law of life. Perfect character of God is, is what's necessary for life. Christ couldn't bring life to us without his death. He had to destroy what was killing us, the scarlet. So we have life symbolized here. Um, Christ is the seed, the seed of Abraham, which will crush the serpent's head. You know, the seed will crush the serpent's head. He's the seed that crushes the serpent's head. And through his, you know, the, the seed falls into the ground and dies, and from it comes life, the parable that Christ gave. And so from Christ, the high priest, the pomegranate, the seed, all of us are represented in the multiple seeds of the pomegranate as we come, are the, are the fruits of his, of his uh, actions in our behalf as our high priest. Um, and if you are, as is Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. We're part of that, that as well. Um, the pomegranate was the fruit that Eve gave to Adam. That's actually Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition teaches that the pomegranate was the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Um, I actually don't think that's the case um, when I read uh, what Ellen Wright describes as the fruit, but um, uh, it's not a fruit that you can really just bite into, really. <laughs> can you? Yeah. Um, but all right, the high the high priest also wore a miter with a gold plate on it. Exodus twenty eight thirty six to thirty eight, and this is the NIV version. It says, "Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it this holy seal. Excuse me, engrave on it a seal holy to the Lord." Fasten a blue cord to it and attach it to the turban, and it is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the children, uh, the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. And the American Standard Version. And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold and engrave upon it like the engravings of a signet, holy to Jehovah. And thou shalt put on it uh, the lace of blue, and it shall be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hollow in their holy gifts. Thoughts about that? And there's one more I've got here from the Good News translation. I'll just go ahead and read it. Make an ornament of pure gold and engrave on it, dedicated to the Lord. Tie it to the front of the turban with a blue cord. Aaron is to wear it on his forehead, so that I, the Lord, will accept the offerings that the Israelites dedicate to me. What do you think this means? What is represented by the gold plate? Character of love of God. Pure character of love, gold. Okay. Divine character Divine assimilated character. in the mind. Divine character assimilated in the mind, the place of thoughts, the place of discernment, the place of judgment, our forehead. Where are the people of God sealed? In their forehead. And what are they sealed with? What is the ceiling? About both intellectually and spiritually, you can't be moved. Yes. Some of the translations have an implication that this had something to do with getting rid of the iniquity by wearing this this medallion. Yes, um, and that's why I read those three translations. One said guilt, one said iniquity, one said 
So I, my, their offerings would be acceptable. How does, how does this might symbolize getting rid of iniquity? Might it symbolize that? Holy to the Lord in the forehead somehow gets rid of iniquity. A conscious turning away from your sins. Ooh, a conscious turning away from their sins. Is there a Bible text? Maybe related to the name of this class that could bear a light on this. <laughs> Come, let us reason together. Where do we reason? In your mind. And what's the rest of the scripture say? Though your sins are like, they will be, though so they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. Is there a linkage here between reasoning and cleansing from sin? Is the scripture linking that for us there? Come, let us reason together that your sins are like scarlet, will be white like snow, they're red like crimson, they're made like wool. There's a gold plate on the forehead where we reason and think holiness to the Lord to take away iniquity. Where did sin start? In heaven. In heaven where? In the heart of Jesus. And how did it spread? By word of mouth. For though we live in the world, we don't wage wars. The world does the weapons we fight with are not worldly. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. What's the war over? Where is it fought? So is there some relationship to be reasoning out the truth in the mind and removing the lies, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What is true set free from? Isn't, isn't the truth set us free from lies and distortion? I mean, on all levels. I mean, haven't you ever been in some false concept about something other than something religious and then the truth came in and wow, you're freed from that idea. Yeah. This is our page of 685. I want to talk more about... Um, Oh, the last paragraph in the lesson on, which day are we on here? On Tuesday's lesson, it says, Notice, too, in the text the idea of priests bearing various things. This, of course, is a crucial theme in the whole plan of salvation, which is the priesthood and sanctuary which the priesthood and sanctuary symbolize, the idea of Jesus, our substitute, bearing in himself our sins and taking upon himself the punishment for them. All of this was foreshadowed through the sanctuary service and the clothing of the priests, Filled with, uh, filled with symbolism that represents the character and work of Jesus on our behalf. So we're talking about this idea of, of carrying or bearing, bearing our sins. What does it mean that Jesus bore our sins? Ideas? The common answer that you will get if you ask 99 out of 100 pastors from any Christian denomination, is that every act of sin, every behavioral sin, every sin of the heart, every evil deed, evil idea, evil thought, past, present, and future, were taken and put upon Christ at the cross, and God punished him for all those at the cross. And full punishment was was meted out at the cross, and he suffered the, the legal wrath of God at the cross for our sin. That's the traditional answer. Could it be that Christ took upon himself <clears throat> the consequences of sin so we wouldn't have to... She, said, she, she, she says, could it be that Christ took upon himself the consequences of sin so we wouldn't have to suffer them? Well, I think those, that, that merits investigation. Yes. He became sin. He became sin who knew no sin. Yeah. 
It says in, in, in uh, Isaiah that the iniquity of us all was, that he took upon himself the iniquity of us all. The iniquity. Hmm. This is Zarvages Ages 685. The guilt of fallen humanity he must bear. Upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of us all. So dreadful does sin appear to him, so great is the weight of guilt which he must bear, that he is tempted to fear it will shut him out forever from his father's love. Feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression, he exclaims, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. What does it mean? Christ is our sin bearer. Does it mean that recorded sins and the record books were put upon him? and God met, meets out certain punishments. Is that what, what's being described? Some hear that. Desire of Ages 1.12. Notwithstanding the sins of a guilty world, notwithstanding that the sins of a guilty world were laid upon Christ, notwithstanding the humiliation of taking upon himself our fallen nature, the voice of heaven declared him to be the son of the eternal. Hmm, Yes. I always have thought of sin as being a separator from God, and so he took our separation from God on himself and died because he lost that separation from God. That's kind of what I've thought of it as being. So sin is a separator. So if he, one would argue then, if he, if he doesn't take sin, then he doesn't get separated. Right. So he somehow took sin upon himself. But he became sin. He became sin who knew no sin. What does that mean? He became sin who knew no sin. When did he take sin upon himself? Yes. The Desire of Ages says that in the Bible references it too that he started taking sin upon himself at the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane. At that point his countenance changed. The disciples had to help carry him. He, he started changing so much that according to the Desire of Ages they didn't, his disciples didn't even recognize him. At this point, he was so changed already. What I think it means is that he did become sin, and he became separated from God. And the only reason it, it had to be Jesus is because he's the only one who could become separated from God, being God himself, and still live for any length of time. And he says that he has to lay down his life. This sin, even in itself, wouldn't have killed him. He laid down his life. He voluntarily gave it up at this point. These are really good points, really good points you're making. Um, maybe we should define what, what is sin. I mean, it's a word we use, and word is a symbol. What does it actually mean? What is sin? It's believing lies about God, about uh, not understanding his character, not understanding who he is, and that he's there for us, not to kill us, but to love us and save us. Believing lies about God is suggested, yes. Distrust. Um, Distrust is suggested. Yes. Which leads us to act out in self-interest instead of others' interest. How about a biblical definition of sin? We're no longer in harmony with God. Okay, now I heard that finally. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. Okay, what what does it mean to be lawless? Disregard the law. Does it mean that we are in harmony with the law or we're outside the law? So if we take a physical uh, an example of the kind of law we can deal with, um, let's say laws of health, laws of respiration. If we are outside the law of respiration, what do we do? But, but literally, what do we do? 
We suffocate. We stop breathing. Okay? We tie a plastic bag over. We break the law by tying a plastic bag. We're now outside the law. We're lawless. Okay? So Christ became lawless. He became sin. He became lawless. He became outside the law. Why do you think he died? The wages of sin is death. James 1 says, sin when full grown brings forth death. What happens to a human being? You know, Christ was, was a combination of human and divine. Divinity, did divinity die at the cross? No. no. So it's, it's humanity we're talking about. Christ's humanity. What happens when Christ's humanity becomes sin or becomes lawless or becomes outside the law? Separated from God. It's separated from God. And what happens? You die. Okay? This is what happens. You cannot live outside the construction protocols upon which God built the universe to run. Does this make sense? He built it to run on harmony with his law of love. This is what life is built upon. If you step out of that, the only result is ruin and death. Christ became sin, who knew no sin. He never knew in his own personhood what it was like to step outside the law, did he? No, he knew it. He didn't know what it was like to live outside the law. We know what it's like to live in lawless life. He doesn't know that. But he became that outside the law. How he did that is... Well, this is, this is very interesting because what he said, and it's true, his visage was changed in Gethsemane. He fell down dying in Gethsemane, and he would, his physical human body would have died, except an angel came from heaven to revive him. Why? This, this, there, there's several times in Christ's life he could have died, and it was prevented. At birth, I mean, right after birth, as an infant, was Herod out to kill him? Why? If I mean, if... Perfect, son of God, becoming man, sinless, shed blood, pays debt penalty, we can be saved. But that's the whole equation. That's the formula. Well, then why not just get it over with, let Herod slay the little innocent baby, blood has been shed, payment's been made, we're good. Bingo. He hadn't had time to develop the remedy to sin that we need, the perfect human character, which is the robe represented by that symbolic robe that that only Christ could develop, the robe woven in the loom of heaven without one thread of human devising. Well, how did he develop that in his human brain? There was never an issue of, was there a, uh, uh, did the divine character need to be developed? Of course it did not. Human character needed to be developed. It was, it was defiled and sinful. And Christ came to do that and restore humanity back to God's design in his own journey and walk. So there's the element of revealing the truth about God and that, that, that there is no, def- no manufacturer's defect in the making of mankind. Okay? Man could have, Adam could have been faithful and loyal. There's nothing wrong with nothing wrong with the law. All these things were revealed and simultaneously achieving the victory in his humanity. It really depends on wh- how you define those terms because we will never lose our freedom for all eternity future. So w- when you say not possible, that could mean we're in a situation where we no longer have choice. And that's not what that would ever mean. It could mean that we're so settled into the truth about God that we would never choose to go against him again when we're all settled and healed and restored fully as God's plan one day has. You haven't had time to become that mature so that the possibility of sin existed then. Pardon? Adam and Eve hadn't become as mature as they would right. been if they'd lived longer. That's right. Wow. All right, so listen to this about bearing sin. The whole question of bearing sin. What did Christ bear? Did he bear our condition upon himself? Did he take the human condition upon himself? Yes. Yes. 
Did he, did he feel temptation as we feel temptation? Yes. Tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And are we tempted from our own feelings? Feelings to save self. Did Christ experience temptation, agony, to pulling human emotions, pulling him to act in self-interest in Gethsemane? Father, be possible, let this cup pass from me. What's he pleading for? He's pleading for his, his humanity. He doesn't want to die. That's that temptation that we all struggle with, to act in self-interest on a very gut level. We're wired for this. But Christ, Christ overcame and said, not my will, thy will be done. No one can take my life. I will give it. Love is overcoming this innate desire to act in self-interest. And we who partake of Christ, who have the law written in our heart and minds again, in Revelation are described as these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Think through. Don't love their life so much. We're not a- acting on self-interest. We're not survival of the fittest people anymore. We're not trying to save self. We're willing to give self for others. So listen to this idea about bearing sin. See if this has, has a new thought for you. The angels of heaven witnessed this is out of Desire of Ages, page 700. The angels of heaven witnessed every movement made against their loved commander. They longed to deliver Christ. Under God, the angels are all-powerful. On one occasion, in obedience to the command of Christ, they slew the Assyrian army in one night, 185,000 men. How easily could the angels, beholding the shameful scene of the trial of Christ, have testified their indignation by consuming the adversaries of God, but they were not commanded to do so. He who could have doomed his enemies to death bore, bore with their cruelty. His love for his father and his pledge made from the foundations of the world to become the sin bearer. He led him to endure uncomplainingly the coarse treatment of those he came to save. It was part of his mission to bear in his humanity all the taunts and abuse that men could heap upon him. The only hope of humanity was in this submission of Christ to all that he could endure from the hands and hearts of men. Do you ever think this is part of what it means to bear sin? Did you notice what he was bearing there? He was bearing our sin. Was he not? Is that the way you usually think of it? Our sinful abuse and treatment of him he bore. Does that just throw another layer of light on it for you? It did me. It's like, wow. Isn't that amazing? He had to bear it. Thoughts? Questions about that? I, I was also struck by just the idea that it was so many religious people who, who were the taunters, the torturers right there. And if he would have died in the Garden of Gethsemane, that wouldn't have been seen but when he's at the cross and you've got all these Sabbath-keeping, health-keeping, tithe-paying religious people all around, it has, a, it has something to say there. It was the religious people who were the ones leading out the most in the taunts and the abuse of Christ. And if he had died in Gethsemane, there was another lesson that would not have been seen. And that is, you remember from the angels looking in, looking in at this this. It says in 1 Corinthians 4.9 that we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. They're watching what's happening. We're, we're like heavenly CNN down here. Okay. They're looking in, watching what's happening on planet Earth. In Old Testament times, God has a people. He's called out from Abraham. I will make a people, a special people to myself. And what does he see through the first half of the, of the existence of the nation of Israel is a group of people who can't get their act together. They're constantly going into idolatry, into fertility cults, and all this idol worship, and in and out of uh, captivity, and, and rebellion, and all this kind of stuff. That's what the angels are watching. But when, the time, when Christ came, 
If you're an angel looking in from the outside, watching what's happening on planet Earth, what do the nation of Israel appear to be doing now? Playing by the rule book. They're finally playing by the rule book. They've got the script down. They know their part. They're finally on cue, on script, online. They're doing their job right. Behaviorally, they were keeping that law, weren't they? And so Christ came, and what did it reveal to the angels? That you can keep all the rules and still hate God and kill him when he shows up before you. Wow. What a lesson. Yes. I think that he also bore, we inflict pain on others, but we always also receive pain from others. And I think he also bore the suffering that we experience, like if a child's abused or uh, someone is killed or maimed by somebody. I think he bore that pain that we experience. It isn't just the pain that we inflicted on him, but what we feel in our daily lives from sin. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Um, in in uh, one, I'm not going to be able to read this. It's too long a quote. You go to Desire of Ages 597. It's talking about the, the object lesson of the cornerstone that was brought to the cornerstone of Solomon's temple and how it was left. They didn't like it. They put it to the side. They rejected it, and they brought more and more, but they couldn't find one that could sustain the weight and the pressure. And finally, after years of searching, this old stone that had been rejected, they pulled back out, and it was the perfect shape, and it could handle all the weight, and it was used as the cornerstone to to build Solomon's temple. And then she uh, goes on to say uh, in, the, in the lesson here, uh, it says, um, uh, carried down in prophetic vision of, uh, to the first advent, the prophet was shown that Christ is to bear trials and tests of which the treatment of the chief cornerstone is in Solomon's temple was symbolic. Uh, so he was to bear these trials and tests in order to do what? Was it part of the, uh, the mission he came to achieve? What is the purpose of the trials and tests? What was he bearing? What relationship does it have to building the temple, Solomon's temple? It says Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch with a capital B. Who is that? Here is the name whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place. Where is his place? In heaven. And build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and sit and rule on his throne, and he will be the priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Now think this through. He's going to branch out from where? And do what? Well, wait a minute. If the temple is already in existence in heaven, why is he branching out to build? You got it. You got it. This is exactly right. He is the chief cornerstone. The foundation is the apostles. We are built together in a house for the Lord. This is, what it, this is what it means. If the, so I, I challenge you as you go through, uh, we don't have time to go into more of the evidences for this today because we're out of time already, but it's fascinating to look at these symbols. Do you find this fascinating? And the symbols are, uh, God is giving us the symbols. And one of the things that I find that people struggle with and where we get a lot of division and a lot of confusion, a lot of disharmony amongst our, our own selves is when people stick to symbols as if they're literal. And they insist that we have a literal application. Parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Some take it literal. If you take it literal, you derive a completely different meaning. And then there's different denominational factions that argue over the doctrine that the literal interpretation would support versus the parable. If you take it as a parable, you get a different interpretation. And you're going to find when it comes to a lot of the things that, that we struggle with, it's people who take certain descriptions. Uh, Ellen White wrote lots of things 
about being in vision and seeing a, 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 a temple in heaven and seeing an ark and, and, and seeing the law in the ark and, the, and Christ in the high priestly robes. The revelator saw the same thing. Is it literal? We, I ask you a question. Is he in heaven dressed in these robes? Or is that all symbols of something? Do we want to press past the symbols or do we want to translate that into a concrete belief system where there's a building in heaven with incense going up and he's dressed in these cool-looking robes? Or do we want to press past to the reality of God's kingdom and universe? I challenge us as a group. Let's, let's ask God for that discernment, that wisdom, that ability. Let's study together. Let's press beyond the symbols to know what is the reality that's all pointing for Gracious Heavenly Father, and that is our prayer to you. You have told us that if we ask for wisdom, you will, you will give it. And we thank you, Father, for your spirit to enlighten our minds. And, and as we study, uh, connect the dots in our mind uh, that we can see the real picture behind the symbols, the picture of the reality of your kingdom, of your goodness, of your graciousness, and what you're trying to accomplish on this earth so we can press past symbolic discussions and get to the reality of what you're trying to achieve so that soon we won't see symbols, we'll see your face, Lord. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank you.